coming up on Garden Talk. If someone had a pretty good base mix and had used some synthetic nutrients in it a time or two, they could probably still turn that into a living soil environment over a short period of time. The microbes will remediate quickly. They'll remediate just about anything quickly. Anything really from the ocean is going to be salty and possibly uh, contaminated. We also like planting stuff like carrots and radishes and things that are going to penetrate the soil and uh, feed everything in the soil or below the soil. The quality is absolutely higher. The more research you do up front and the more prepared you are going into that situation, the better your turnout's going to be for sure. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This episode number 55. In this episode, I interview James from Red Dirt Raised. He's been gardening for his entire life, and he currently runs a commercial facility in Oklahoma. In this episode, he talks about several different things, such as transitioning from synthetic to organic, ferments, water-soluble mineral inputs, and more. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to AC Infinity for sponsoring this podcast. They sent me over their grow tent, which has a canvas density of 2000D, making them the thickest grow tent on the market today. It has an aluminum plate that mounts your controller to the grow tent with a lightproof pass-through for cable routing. The frame has 50% thicker steel poles and carries two times more weight than the standard grow tents. Coupon code MrGrowIt will get you a discount on their products, and I'll leave a link to their website down in the description section below. Dutch Pro is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MrGrowIt10DP will get you a discount on their products. They are a plant fertilizer company that has been around for over 30 years. They originated in Amsterdam, and their nutrients are available in several countries across the world. They have everything needed for proper plant nutrition, from base nutrients to additives and pH regulators. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below. And don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with James from Red Dirt Raised. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Chris? Doing pretty good. Thanks for asking. Excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that I think are going to be valuable to the audience listening in. We're going to talk about transitioning from synthetics to organics. We're also going to get into things such as ferments, water-soluble mineral inputs, cover crops, and so much more. But first, before we get into those things, what we like to do is an introduction. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? You bet. My name's James. I'm the owner of Red Dirt Raised. And we have a small uh, family-ran medicinal farm, uh, medicinal plant farm in Oklahoma. Um, we started it in 2019 and uh, have been gardening all my life. Uh, other types of plants, vegetables, uh, uh, house plants, um, but have been commercially, uh, commercially farming in Oklahoma since 2019. 
That's awesome. And I know you, I, I believe you started out with synthetics, right? And then you kind of transitioned over to organics. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. First, kind of before talking about the transition and how to go about it, general question here, which I mean, I know the answer, but I think it's important for the audience to know the answer as well, which is why make the change from synthetic to organic? For us, uh, it was all about quality initially. Um, if you've, uh, if you've tasted the difference in an organically grown uh, tomato, um, as to, uh, uh, compared to what you may go buy at the grocery store, um, you'll know immediately, you know, the flavor, uh, is, is quite a bit stronger in that organically grown tomato. Um, same thing goes for medicinal plants. Um, the quality is absolutely higher. Um, you're going to see a, a more diverse terpene profile, um, higher cannabinoid content altogether. Um, and then, you know, for us, a lot of it had to do with sustainability. Um, uh, being able to uh, provide your plants with the food they need um, instead of using a bottle, uh, using something from the earth, uh, or maybe even, you know, a ferment or something that you have uh, made there yourself. Um, but now it was a, it was a number of reasons for us. Um, you know, if you're running a farm commercially, uh, the bottom line is always going to uh, help steer decisions and overhead on any size farm isn't small. Uh, so, you know, that was another really attractive uh, selling point for, for me, trying to choose what direction we were going to go. Uh, but it all started with quality. If you've had organically grown uh, medicinal plants, you know the difference. One major thing you mentioned is sustainability, right? Now, certainly there are, there are pros and cons to growing both ways, I believe. Sustainability really stands out there. You know, going out and spending money on nutrients every single round can be expensive. And you can certainly save money going the organic side of things. I think that's a lot, uh, reason why folks transition to the organic side of things because you can save a significant amount of money uh, if you do things right, transitioning over to organics. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. Most of my audience are home growers, right? So they're in containers, they maybe buy a, a bag soiled and they're starting to use synthetic nutrients. Oftentimes what they're doing is throwing out that medium, right? They're throwing out after they finish their grow, they're usually throwing out that soil and then buying a new bag of soil starting fresh. The reason why is because things such as salt buildup can occur, which can, you know, once you plant your next crop, you could potentially, you're at higher risk of running into issues. Also, there can be a, a nutrient imbalance over time that can happen within the medium. Now, you're out on a farm, right? So there's no, like, there's no throwing away the soil and starting fresh, right? You have to kind of, you've already used synthetics. You have to use that same soil in order to transition to organics. So what are the steps to kind of go about transitioning from synthetic to organic? So depending on scale, um, you know, that's, that's, there's a few factors there that are going to, um, I think really line out the steps for people, um, uh, for a tent grower, 
somebody at home uh, with a small garden, uh, you could just simply, well, education is key, first of all. Uh, try to educate yourself as much as you can. For us, it was huge making that decision uh, because uh, it's a totally different system, and if you screw it up, uh, it can be costly. So uh, we went with raised beds. And, uh, you know, if somebody were growing in pots and using bottled nutrients, uh, they could go to uh, something that fits their tent, which, uh, you know, I think a four by four, you got a four by four or three by three bed. And then the same goes for four by eight or, you know, anything bigger. But, um, you know, I, uh, after lots and lots of research, we decided to to use basically the same base mix that everyone else uses, which is 33% compost, 33% peat or cocoa or, you know, your desired media, um, and then 33% aeration or a third of each or however you want to say that. Um, but, uh, you know, at home or commercially, commercially it's going to be quite a bit more complicated, but, uh, um, in a tent at home, uh, someone could either find a local soil yard uh, that's already mixing something real similar to that and amend it themselves, um, or you could go with a great company like Build-A-Soil and uh, buy something that, you know, uh, products that already have integrity and, and uh, are already mixed Um we mixed everything at home and went and bought uh, peat from Lowe's, uh, which was Canadian sphagnum peat moss. Um, we like uh, rice holes and pumice for aeration, um, but you can use uh, other types of aeration, volcanic rock and um you know, people use perlite. We've actually got some soil that has perlite in it. Um, but, you know, and you can source your own compost. Uh, that one's tricky, as you probably know. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's really where you're, you're probably either going to be uh, make it or break it, I would say, is uh, finding good compost. So um, we did that at home and uh, are even doing some composting here at home. Um, and we're trying to do a biocomplete compost, uh, which is what I would suggest for anybody. That's really more uh, like your uh, soil food web and Elaine Ingham uh, school of thought. Uh, but uh, amending your soil is going to be a little different. If you're if you're commercial, I don't suggest using certain products, um, kelp meal. Yeah, anything really from the ocean is going to be uh, salty and possibly uh, contaminated with uh, things in the uh, medicinal plant market that are going to cause, uh, you know, health risks and issues like that. Um, heavy metals, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, there's also some easier ways to dial things in and for us since we were commercial we tested our soil uh, we were really doing that under the guidance of Brandon Russ and uh, uh, doing it consistently uh, you know once a month at least 
if you've got rows uh, and you're using raised beds, um, you know, that, that gets a little bit tricky because uh, each individual bed is going to be a little bit different. And if you're growing different cultivars, that's going to change things up a little bit as well. Um, different plants pull different things from the soil. So, um, but really, there's some great uh, information out there already. Uh, Coots Mix and that recipe's uh, uh, already out there uh, for people to easily access. Um, I think you can even get, you know, a lot of build recipes and what they're using uh, just off their back. Uh, you know, but we uh, prefer soybean meal, uh, alfalfa meal, um, and try to avoid things from the ocean, uh, not just because of heavy metals and other contaminants, but because of sodium and, you know, salt buildup. So, uh, once they get that mixed, um... You know, if they're not going to test their soil, uh, I would inoculate, plant, and take off uh, because it's going to do pretty awesome. And it's going to do a lot of the work for you, and it's going to get better with time. Uh, we like using cover crop and other things like that to help with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the full cycle there that's happening in the soil food web. Uh, things breaking down. We do use worms, uh, worm castings even. But once you get the worms in the bed, you really don't need the castings a whole lot anymore. They're doing a lot of that for you. Uh, so um, I can keep going. You want me to? <laughs> <laughs> I did have a follow-up question. I should have asked this in the, during the intro, but on your farm, what's the size? You said you were in raised beds. How many, like what size raised beds are you using? How many plants are you growing? Uh, things like that. So we have three flower rooms indoor. Um, we have a veg and mother and propagation area. Um, and then we have a greenhouse that we just built. Um, you can, uh, you can find a lot of that on Instagram at red dirt raised. Okay. Um, we just, uh, just gotten that finished. And really, 2022 is going to be where we're getting to display uh, the spaceship we built out there because it's honestly better than our indoor operation um, and more sustainable, uh, more regenerative. You know, we're going to be using the sun. We'll also be doing some no-till out there, I think, eventually. Uh, we uh, We've taken and had a lot of people bless us with advice and information over the last few years, uh, like Brandon. Um, but we'll also be doing some ferments and do ferments indoors, um, just in, not in, not in, uh, uh high amounts. Uh, we really try to let the soil food web do as much of the work as we can. And then, um, you know, Brandon is mainly uh, a water-soluble uh, guy, and a lot of his information and recommendations have been um, with water soluble. So that's a really easy way to get balance in your soil. And after testing, um, 
you know, on a commercial level where you're trying to keep production consistent, that was a big deal for us. We uh, having that in your in your toolbox is huge. You know, we we'll get deeper into water soluble mineral inputs in a little bit here. So okay, so you're in beds. And you kind of started with your own soil mix versus trying to revive the native soil in in the ground. Now, my question for you before we move on is, can home growers reuse the soil where synthetic nutrients have been used in? Or, or do you think they should just start fresh with making their own soil, like you mentioned, with the 33-33-33 mix? I would definitely say start fresh uh, with that 33-33-33 that's not to say it can't be done, uh, but that's not the way we did it. And, um, you know, I, I would assume that if someone had a pretty good base mix and had used some synthetic nutrients in it a time or two, they could probably still turn that into a living soil uh, environment over a short period of time. Um, the microbes will remediate quickly. They'll remediate just about anything quickly. Uh, or, or uh, revive, you know, um, uh, allowing them to do most of the work has really been key, I think, for, you know, especially no-till farmers, but um, for us as well, uh, trying less is more kind of attitude, you know, um, really allowing uh, the plant and the soil to have that symbiotic relationship and uh, stay out of their way as much as possible that makes sense so for the 33 33 33 mix i just released an episode recently with jeremy silver from build a soil not sure if you caught that one or not but he gets real into detail about 33 33 33 and what to use when you're soil building so we won't get too deep into that in this episode but i do want to know what initial amendments you're putting within that mix? So um, initially we'll start with a really good compost, which is going to have more nutrients in it than just about anything uh, else you're going to put in there. Uh, already broken down and ready to go, available. Uh, but uh, we'll also add alfalfa meal. Um, we might use a little bit of green sand. Um, we might... Uh, uh, use a little soybean meal. Um, we do have some oyster shell meal in our soil, uh, but not a lot. Um, we use some gypsum, um, calcium sulfate. Um, there's a little calfos in our soil. Um, worm castings, you know, which are going to be a great source of nitrogen. Um, and then we fired it up, oh, about three weeks after actually getting soil in beds, uh, with worms, a little bit of cover crop and really kind of let everything go for, you know, 20, 21 days on its own before planting. Okay. And then eventually those nutrients, you know, majority of them will deplete and then you have to re-amend like a lot of folks when growing indoors, they'll have that initial amendment and then they'll do a top dressing, you know, roughly 30 days uh, into the grow. 
Uh, typically, you know, folks will do it before flipping a flower. They will do it 20 to 30 days into flower. So this is the general way of going about feeding. You know, we're talking indoors. After you do those initial amendments that you mentioned, that initial planting, you said you wait 20 days and you plant in. At what point do you do any other fertilizer? Add in any more, you know, top dressing or, or what? I think midway through flower is a pretty good point. Um, you know, if uh, if you've tested your soil and you know the balance and the nutrition levels are there, uh, then you may be able to do a run with water only. And, you know, that's kind of the goal. Um, but uh, we like malted barley. Um, we use... Uh, we use regular water and only do that a couple of times a week in those beds, uh, but occasionally there will be a feeding. There will be a little bit extra in there. Um, and, you know, some people will just top dress. Um, if we can, uh, we like to water in as much uh, food as we can, as much nutrition as we can, as much inoculation as we can. Uh, the water really helps. Uh spread things out you know absolutely now circling back to the water soluble mineral inputs what water soluble mineral inputs do you use so we're pretty big on uh, soybean amino acids uh, hydrolysate soybean hydrolysate um, you get a high quality uh, version of that and it's pretty water soluble um you know, they make a form of calcium sulfate, uh, gypsum, uh, that is really fine and powdery and is fairly water-soluble. Um, a lot of people are familiar with uh, Epsom salt, uh, magnesium sulfate. Um, we use it, and uh, it, you know, extremely water-soluble. Um, potassium sulfate. Uh, you got to watch what you buy because there are chemical versions of these, and then there are mined mineral versions of these. And I suggest, uh, like down to earth, uh, or products that you know have been mined and uh, aren't some byproduct of you know industry. But uh, for the most part, uh, that is it. We do use humic acid uh, in powder form. And um, we also use a humic fulvic, a full power, but uh, that's really, I'd say, the majority of the water solubles that we use. So you mentioned a ton there. When do you generally apply those water soluble mineral inputs? I'm sure there's different times for different different ones, right? Sure. Um, cool thing about those is you can top dress them and literally get uh, like a full run, you know, seven, eight weeks before you really start seeing uh, levels depleting. Um, or you can uh, do small feedings with them and water them in, uh, you know, once a week. Um, the soybean amino, uh, the humic acid is something that you can use uh, almost all the way through uh, and I mean, vegetative stage on into flowering. Uh, you could cut back on the soybean aminos because of the high nitrogen content. I would say probably week five, um, week four of flower. Um, especially if you're running a system like ours where you have other sources of nitrogen, 
in the soil already. But uh, the others, uh, you know, calcium sulfate, gypsum, uh, obviously uh, all plants uh, like calcium, um, some more than others, medicinal plants or hogs, and uh, they're gonna they're gonna want calcium source strong source of calcium and magnesium all the way through uh, growth really uh, vegetative and flower. But uh, potassium sulfate you're gonna use that quite a bit more in the later stages. Uh, I would say uh, in lighter amounts in um, your first three four weeks of flower. Uh, and then that's going to get uh, a little stronger in probably weeks four through eight, four through ten. I know there's some that you mentioned that people often use as foliar feeds. You know, they want that fast acting. Perfect example would be if you have, you're starting to see magnesium deficiency. They'll do a foliar of Epsom salt, magnesium sulfate. Do you do any foliars at all for those water soluble mineral inputs? We do. Um, we like to use uh, the magnesium sulfate. Uh, we like to use um, a bioavailable version of silica. Um, we uh, we also foliar feed some OHN and um, a lot of our IPM is foliar. Um, not to get off track there. I know we can get into that later, but. Let's see if I'm leaving anything out. Uh, even microbial uh, foliars, you know, we, we have a couple of different products. One made right here in Oklahoma uh, called Wind River, and uh, it's great in soil and as a foliar. Um, see if I'm leaving anything out. I think that's really about it. A few uh, stimulants. Um, you know, there's a couple different foliars that we use uh, that will stimulate uh, the plant's immune system, if you will. Uh, and I think that's about it for foliars. How often do you inoculate microbes? Once a week, at least, we're doing something. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of different inoculations that we uh, like to use. Some are more... Uh, well, most, I'll, I'll be honest, are more fungally dominant. Uh, but we do have uh, a couple of different products even that we like. Um, we've used, you know, everything under the sun, fish shit, um, mammoth pea. Uh, but honestly, there's nothing like really good compost. And, uh, you know, you can do, a, a lot of people don't like to do teas, indoor especially. Um, because of the risk you may take uh, brewing uh, bad bacteria. So, uh, you know, a top dress of compost, especially if you're using a, a good mulch layer, will go a long way. You can water that in, um, or uh, you can do uh, a, a concentrate. You're basically straining uh, the compost into the water and um, and creating a concentrated version there and then using that to water in instead of uh, brewing, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, your Soul Food Web folks, uh, 
are probably bigger. Your Lane Ingham folks are probably bigger on these terminologies uh, uh, and know them well. But uh, that's that may be a little safer version, and we often do that. But we also do tease, and um, you know we use some uh, species of uh, fungi as food cycling, nutrient cycling, um, and you know they're a benefit to the plant's health. And then some are going to be more for IPM and, uh, you know, to keep pest pressure down, uh, other bacteria, fungi and pests. I'm glad you brought up the, the risk of brewing a tea, which is that you're brewing anaerobic bacteria, right? Which that's happened to me before, you know, not having enough air stones in the bucket and then giving it to my plant. And all of a sudden the plant looks like crap for like several days and it's like you know eventually it bounced back but it was a significant step back you know sure. so it can absolutely happen you know making sure you have enough air stones in there is important uh, some people actually put a air line going directly into their bag of compost that they put into the bucket i don't know if you do that as well or anything like that if you've heard about that tip but i thought that was pretty interesting we haven't tried that um so uh we have a brewer that we built with the help of Leighton Morrison. Uh, not sure if you're familiar with him from Future Cannabis Project. They do yep. living spoil conversations. But Leighton helped us uh, build a brewer here that we love. It's a 55-gallon Tapco tank, cone bottom, and then it's plumbed uh, and has a really cool uh, air pump going to it that's super quiet and uh, low maintenance uh, but with that air entering the bottom instead of using a stone it eliminates the need to clean a stone or you know um, buy new ones you know you gotta you gotta replace those things after a while just from gunk but um, now we've loved that brewer and you know we'll use it even just to mix a feeding uh, just to aerate our water, not necessarily to brew a tea, um, but just to have good aerated uh, living water and um, moving water. Uh, but yeah, we uh, that eliminated a lot of the the bad issues with brewing for us. And then you know a few different things uh, about brewing, uh, you know, or tips that we've been given are, um, you know, strain your compost instead of brew it. That can often be uh, uh, very helpful, and you can make that concentrated version of that inoculant that way uh, uh, and then water that in. But if you're seeing any brown uh, around the ring or the top of uh, your brew uh, and you are brewing a tea, uh, the stuff that starts sticking to the side of your bucket uh, or your tank, um, that's usually, uh, I believe, kind of a bad sign of uh, that bad bacteria brewing, that anaerobic bacteria brewing. Or maybe I was told that it was waste of some sort from, uh, you know, the microbes. But um, anyways, we tried to limit the times. We, You know, when we started out, it was sometimes 24, 48 hours of brewing. And then uh, that eventually, 
got to where it wasn't really any more than about 12. And uh, by that time, we're watering it in. And usually don't see any of that brown film stuck to the side uh, at that point. So um, I think that that avoids a lot of that anaerobic activity, you know, people run into. You do like a 48-hour brew and you got a stinky, smelly, uh, you know, and that doesn't always happen. I think if you have enough sugar or carbohydrates in there uh, for those microbes to feast on and they don't die off and they probably thrive for, you know, not real sure how long. But Yeah, I typically do no longer than 24 hours. Sometimes I'll pull a little bit earlier than that just to kind of safe side things. But I don't really do teas that often. I mean, like you mentioned in the beginning, something you, you can just top dress compost and water that in, right? That's very effective as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's flip it up. Let's talk about ferments. I want to get into this. This is something that I haven't done myself, but I hear more and more people talking about it. So can you talk to us about ferments? What are they? How you go about doing them? You bet. Um, so we're in no, in no way are we um, experts in ferments, but uh, Van from KNF Garden, um, I met him at a convention here in Oklahoma in 2020, I believe, and uh, ended up using some of his techniques. Uh, we started off uh, with kind of his baseline in veg, which was humic and aminos, um, which is a great combination, by the way. I'm not saying that's all plants need, but um, we've seen good results from it. Uh, the, the ferments that we used were his versions of uh, KNF. And, um, you know, I think he's doing things uh, a little differently, kind of a hybrid version, if you will. Uh, for him, you know, he lived in L.A., I believe, and didn't, didn't really have a farm to do KNF uh, on uh, Korean natural farming. And... Um, uh, I think simplifying it uh, was was probably what he was going for. But anyways, uh, you know, fermentation, uh, uh, taking fruit and vegetables um, with sugar and allowing uh, or without. I think a lot of people actually do it without and uh, allow that stuff to break down. And, uh, uh, you know, same process used for making alcohol. Um, but, uh, all those nutrients become available again. And, uh, at some point you can stabilize it with his recipe. We were only going a couple of weeks, uh, and using lots of different kinds of fruits and veggies. Um, and, uh, you know, you try to be responsible, uh, uh go get organically grown fruits and vegetables and start there if you're going to do it that way. But I think the whole premise behind Korean natural farming is probably uh, using the land you have, uh, you know, to grow those fruits and vegetables and then fermenting them and, you know, using that to feed, uh, so plants feeding plants, you know, and you're kind of speeding up that process with fermentation. Um, you know, Van's idea behind a lot of it uh, is uh, even... I think trying to push certain cannabinoids and terpene levels uh, and using certain fruits and vegetables uh, to target those. Um, 
So we started using this bloom ferment uh, and have now for, um, I would say, five, six months uh, with success. Uh, that's in a living soil system and raised beds, and it's not only using ferments. Uh, so we're definitely a lot of the times using less than the suggested amount. Um, and sometimes if we feel like they really need something, we may give them more. But um, combining that with that soil food web, I've seen nothing but amazing results from. And, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy there. Uh, but, I mean, all in all, it's, uh, we're, we're still doing the same thing and we have the same goal. Uh, so for us, it's always been about quality, you know, uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, there's almost belief systems built behind these methods. And if you veer uh, one from another, um, the community doesn't necessarily always uh, agree on stuff like that. So, uh, but for us, it's always been about providing the best possible medicine we can. Um, and so if that's combining some of these methods together, that's, that's fine with us. Do you have like a general recipe that somebody can follow or like a source that a noob like me can go to and learn how to start fermenting? You bet. Uh, go follow, uh, at KNF garden. Um, go follow, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy has some great ferment uh, products that I've seen available. So that's another good uh, source. Um, uh, you know, don't come to us for that information necessarily. I can give you, uh, you know, the uh, recipe that we use, but we're not uh, KNF gurus by any means. Uh, you know, the, the man himself, Chris Trump, um, I believe at Chris Trump on Instagram. Um, lots of good uh, ferment farmers out there. Um, uh, lots of good guys still in uh, Cali, uh, Humboldt region using ferments. Uh, man, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could name them all off on the spot. Uh, but that right there ought to get you started. And Van's method is so super simple. Um, you know, you can't go wrong there. Uh, I think he's even selling uh, his bloom ferment. Uh, so you can go buy that and just start there and see, you know, the difference. But, uh, you know, he uh, uh, claims you're going to see a greasier um terpier flower and we have seen some great results uh from our experience with that so i think uh i think you can't go wrong with with his stuff jay plant speaker i think is another guy that may do some hell i think masonic does some knf stuff uh you know lots of good teachers out there yeah, lots of sources there. I'm familiar with some of those names, and not, but not all of them. So I'll definitely be following some of those names for sure. I do want to get into cover crops a little bit. So we're talking about making that transition from synthetic to organic. Cover crops is something that's optional, 
but a lot of people use it because there are benefits to it, right? So for example, I use clover for a cover crop. A white Dutch clover is the kind that I use. And one thing I've learned is that it helps with nitrogen fixation. So it's actually taking nitrogen from the air, converting it and putting it to the soil that the, in a form that the plant can uptake, right? So that's just one benefit on one particular type of cover crop. There's a whole different types of uh, cover crops out there with uh, various amounts of uh, various types of benefits for sure. What do you use for cover crops and kind of what's your process for planting them as well? We're big on clover as well, and uh, native grasses are great, you know. Um, you just got to be careful uh, what seed you're starting with, because uh, you never know how not, that was grown or harvested. Uh, so, you know, build the soil. Uh, here in Oklahoma, we've got Redbud Soil Company, and they make some great cover crop blends. Um, you know... We also uh, like planting stuff like carrots and radishes and things that are going to penetrate the soil and uh, feed everything in the soil or below the soil. Um, but uh, uh, process for planting cover crop uh, for us, uh, we started with cover crop after uh, initially filling our beds and everything. Um uh, and then uh, we'll replant cover crop um, after harvest when we've got access to the soil again. Uh, and really, that's about it. Uh, that that uh, really takes care of itself uh, uh, really well. You're letting nature do its thing and um, not too complicated there, you know. So between grows, when you're planting that cover crop, how long are you letting that cover crop grow? And, you know, are you cutting it down and letting it die off? Is there like a period of time, you know, like two weeks or a month or what's your time period? So uh, we'll, we'll plant and basically let the cover crop grow until it's um, maybe become an annoying, you know, getting a little bit out of hand. Uh, we may chop it back then. But a lot of the times we'll let that naturally uh, occur as well and, and uh, haven't had to do a ton of uh, maintenance. Now, we don't use near as much cover crop as a lot of people I've seen. Um, Cantwell over Greenlight Productions has usually got a pretty nice green bed uh, going, it looks like, and uh, we don't use quite that much. I think he uses Dichondra and some other things. Uh, uh, that we haven't tried yet, but are very interested in. Um, but yeah, I would say, uh, you know, experiment with stuff like uh, uh, carrots and, and radishes and growing, even, you know, companion plants uh, with your medicinal plants uh, or your uh, vegetable garden. Um, you know, you'd be amazed uh the difference in a bed full of plants and, and a pot with one uh, and, and what you see going on there. Uh, they definitely enjoy one another. I think so too. I've seen it for sure. Yeah. So there are a lot of people trying to make that transition from synthetic to organic, right? Taking a step back, generally speaking, what advice do you have for those trying to make that transition? I would say be patient. Um, you know, it, everything may not play out just like you want. 
uh, especially that first run or two. Um, you know, if you're doing a no-till type of method, uh, that less is better mindset will go a long way. Um, and uh, don't water so much, <laughs> you know. That's probably uh, one of the most common mistakes that people make uh, going from synthetics to organics. Uh, if you're using uh, a decent sized pot, which I've heard Jeremy and others talk quite a bit about, uh, you know, there's going to be enough moisture and nutrition in that pot uh, to last that plant beyond, you know, what we normally would think. And, uh, yeah, you know, just be patient and uh, spend as much time reading and, and uh, searching for information as you can. Uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, so, you know, in an organic system where things are a little bit more permanent, uh, the more research you do up front and the, and the more prepared you are going into that situation, uh, the better your turnout's going to be for sure. Well said. So wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Uh, so the listeners can find uh, me and my family ran farm at Red Dirt Raised OK on Instagram. And our website will be up soon, reddirtraisedok.com. Um, if you come to Oklahoma uh, or if you're in Oklahoma, you can find uh, the dispensaries and shops that we're in. Um on our uh, Instagram account or website. And uh, yeah, that's really, uh, that would be the place. Email would be reddirtraisedllc.com. I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have a link to at least your Instagram down in the description section below. I know YouTube's kind of, I don't really like the medicinal plants being linked down below. So I'll see what I can do as far as links to, to your stuff. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. I want to get as many thumbs up as possible. That helps on YouTube in particular in order to reach more viewers. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already or press the follow button on if you're on a podcast platform and share this episode if you think others would attain value from it. James, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Definitely some great information. Uh, I learned a thing or two, and I think this is uh, valuable information to my audience as well. So thanks for coming on, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Chris. You too.